Well, three of our teenagers were baptised last Sunday and it was terrific to hear and see many of our teenagers trusting in Christ and following him earnestly. Uh, I was hearing recently of a quite a large youth group that is having some struggles at the moment. Um, on the one hand, it's terrific, lots of new people are coming along to the youth group. But in a way, the core is struggling to maintain a Christian culture within the youth group. And so the new people, um, older teens, are coming with a partying and drinking culture. And the effect is that some of the youth group is actually moving more that way. And with the younger teens watching on, um, it's bad both for the youth being involved, but also younger youth and the influence they have on them. And so as we heard of this, we prayed for their youth ministry that the older youth would instead uh, know where they stand with Christ and hold on to him and, and know that they can have a great influence on others. But when churchgoers of any age live a double life, it's not as though they're getting away with something good. When you think of those teenagers living this life and the Christian life, trying to do both at once, it, it's not going to be good for them. Um, it's going to be sad and it's going to be a picture closer to that of Hosea. Uh, one author says that Hosea chapter 6 to 8, the chapters we're looking at today, don't flatter us. Uh, they don't flatter us. Even though we're reading of Israel, we're not to be proud of ourselves as though we're indifferent or that we would do things differently in our time and place. Yes, as Christians, we're forgiven, justified, saved. But until Jesus comes, the humble see in themselves the same flaws that Hosea saw in Israel. And if we say we are gods but give the flesh its way over the spirit, what are we going to be lo looking like? Uh, where does compromise get us if we try to have a foot in both camps? We're gods or we're what? What's the alternative to being holy gods? In the first verse of today's text, in Hosea 6 verse 4, God asks Ephraim or Israel, what can I do with you? What am I to do with you? Um, when you don't seek me wholeheartedly, you are like. And then the rest of these chapters give us examples of images of what Israel are like. You are like the morning mist, firstly, verse 4. Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. But then there's a surprising severity of God's response. Just as God's word is mighty to create, so it is mighty to judge, verse 5. Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun, cutting words of God against his people. And the verse Jesus loved and quoted in verse 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, not your empty ritualism, not that facade that you keep putting on while your hearts, and you know your hearts are someone's other than mine. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Uh, James started our service talking about relationship with God, and, and God here is saying the same thing, acknowledgement, a knowledge of him. Hosea mentions some of Israel's glory days next as the passage continues, and yet how they fell from those glory days. Example one is Adam who chose to sin over Edom in verse 7. Verse 7, if you notice, it says, at Adam, a strange thing to say. I think it is poetically doubling as a reminder both of the person of Adam and a town called Adam. 
which was the first town Israel touched when crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land. Not John 3.16, but Joshua 3.16 records their move into the Promised Land and via the town of Adam. So much promise from both Adams. But again, you're moving away from me, falling from grace. From the beautiful beginnings of Adam and Adamville, you, you Israel, defect and choose evil over good. And then another embarrassing memory with more place and people names. Gilead, verse 8, and you can read about that in 1 Kings 10 to 11, where there is blood spilt, verse 8, a society of violence. I believe there's a march on today for some of the violence of our last week. And some of it even from corrupt priests, verse 9. We're no strangers to that in Australia. Prostitution in Ephraim and Judah is no different, verse 11. And then the chilling truth, chapter 7, verse 2, they do not realize that I remember all their deeds, their evil deeds, their their sins engulf them. They are always before me. Now, we say an elephant has a good memory, but the terrifying thing for sinners, past and present, is to realize that God's memory is far better, perfect, in fact. Imagine all of your worst moments, the things you might roll over in bed as you recall, over all of your years, played for all to see. Who could stand? God the judge remembers it all. We have a long record of sin as individuals, as families, churches, denominations, even as nations. And God the judge remembers it all, every individual and corporate closet where we hide the sins. It's often impossible to untangle what suffering is due to what sin. But we can be sure, and our lawmakers should know, and I'd love them to be aware, that sin has consequences. And so the laws we make as a society will have implications. I know nuance is needed to speak well of this topic, perhaps more than I can do today, but some moments in Australia's history are worse than embarrassing, just as Israel's were. They are tragic And we shouldn't be surprised as a nation when even our old sins keep producing sad fruit. Just in America at the moment, um, another shooting. Um, I read in the paper that over two mass shootings per day have uh, been the case over the last year. What will be the fruit of this kind of culture for the coming generations? It will have an impact and it won't be good. Australia too present and past, have plenty of things we can be ashamed of as well as proud of. We can learn not about dozens but hundreds of massacre sites. One old English proverb says that old sins cast long shadows. Sins have long-term unintended consequences. Old sins cast long shadows. I'm glad many people in our past, and you may be more recently um, an Australian, Perhaps you're not an Australian and some of this history is new to you. But I'm glad in our history there have also been people who sought to do the right thing. After the Mile Creek Massacre in 1838, for example, a Sydney Baptist pastor, John Saunders, called out what he was seeing in a sermon. I'll read you some of his sermon. We have not been fighting with a natural enemy, but have been eradicating the possessors of the soil. And why, indeed? Because they were troublesome, 
because some few had resented the injuries they had received. And then how were they destroyed? By wholesale, in cold blood. Let the Hawkesbury and Emu Plains tell their story. Let Bathurst give in, give in her account and the hunter render her tale, not to mention the South. And we shall find that while rum and licentiousness and famine and disease have done their part to exterminate the blacks, the musket and the bayonet and the sword and the poisoned damper have also had their influence and that Britain have, have avent, hath avenged the death of her sons not by law but by retaliation at the atrocious disproportion of a hundred to one. The spot of blood is upon us, the blood of the poor and the defenceless, the blood of the men we wronged before we slew, and too often, too, too often, a hundred times too often, innocent blood. If God is good to Australia, it's not because we're lucky or we're civilised or we've been very good Christian citizens. It's because of his sheer mercy and because the fruit of every generation's sin is far less than it might be. For again, those continuing in sin, Hosea chapter 7, verse 2, they do not realise that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. Australia's history, like every other nation's, cries out against its inhabitants. It's not just us. From before and after white settlement, in our case, our recorded history speaks of not just this tragedy, but every kind of abuse in our hospitals, to white and black, boarding houses, orphanages, schools, churches. The Presbyterian Church has put out an invitation. If, if we've wronged you in the past, please come forward because that will be helpful for your healing and we'd like to hear about it and move forward with it, with you. And I'm meant to repeat that occasionally to the church. Um, then there are the everyday things we don't call crimes in Australia, like just lies and manipulation and greed and adultery and more. Old sins, we can expect, will cast long shadows. Meanwhile, the new sins just keep arriving. There are skeletons in every society's closet. Israel's Adam is our Adam. They had their Gilead, Shechem, Judah, but we have this town and that city, our houses, these relationships, your heart and mine. Do you know, some Christians, who should know better, I think, dare to blame God for the bad things that happen in our world as though our world deserves better. You can see how understandable the question then for Israel and for us is. What am I to do with you, O Israel? Your past, your present, my holy people, my treasured possession, my bride? And I say too, the case of Israel is slightly different from every other nation. They were in a covenant relationship with God in a way that Australia and other nations weren't. But still, taking us back to Adam here, I think is meant to unite us in this same situation. I love you with steadfast love. Applies to Israel, it applies to all creatures, all of creation. While in return to, for God's love, your love is like the morning mist. You love sin more than you love me. You wear my ring, but you despise me as your husband in your search for other men, other rubbish gods. You harm your neighbour and yourselves. How long am I meant to watch on? What am I to do with you, Israel? Instead of seeking me wholeheartedly, 
your spiritual adultery makes you like a morning mist, firstly. Secondly, like a dodgy oven. If you've ever had a dodgy oven, you'll know how frustrating they can be. I was visiting someone this week who said their oven's dodgy and they don't enjoy it. We've got a dodgy, dodgy oven in our church and no one uses it because it ruins the food you try to bake in it. We're putting a new one in downstairs, by the way, it's coming. But what's the point of using a bad oven? Uh, when our kids were young, we owned one of those Weber barbecues and, um, with the hot coals that heat up and produce a, a better flavour. And it was delicious when it worked properly. But as the kids grow, grew up and we needed more food on the barbecue and after a few times of getting it wrong, um, I just gave up of having late lunches and hungry kids. How are Israel like a dodgy oven? For impact, God's legal charges come in this form of poetic satire, accusing parables. So we get the gist sometimes without all the historical details. I think they're meant to be approachable for us today. But the image is a dysfunctional oven up to no good. Let's hear Hosea explain. They are all adulterers, burning like an oven whose fire the baker need not stir for the kneading of the dough till it rises. I think saying that sin permeates and spreads, it feeds itself. Sin gives birth to more sin by nature. And the sin of Israel here is under the surface, subversive, but ready to burst forth with a breath of opportunity when it comes into a fierce blaze. A day or a pattern of days perhaps in Israel's history described in verse 5. On the day of the festival of our king, The princes become inflamed with wine and he joins hands with the mockers, evildoers. Their hands are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smoulders all night. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are as hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. The northern kingdom's downfall was just like that. Four of the six kings were assassinated for plotting, perhaps at these feasts, And four of the six kings were assassins themselves. An internal combustion kingdom. Verse 7, all their kings fall and none of them calls on me. When you're unfaithful to me, Israel, you're like a dodgy oven, smouldering, then volatile, and always cooking up trouble for yourselves. But your idolatry and your adultery also makes you like a half-baked cake, verses 8 to 10. Now, for obvious reasons, I don't think I've ever eaten a pancake cooked on one side. Uh, But Israel, the problem pancake, began with compromised ingredients. Disregarding God's law, they left their husband to blend themselves with nations, spiritually and physically. Ephraim, verse 8, mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a cake, a flat loaf, not turned over. They are a loaf burned on the bottom and squishy, mushy on top. How is that so? Well, it could be the hypocrisy spelled out in chapter 8. They're two-sided. God's wife, but not living like God's wife. God's people, but not. An unpalatable yuckiness. If these chapters describe Israel, but are not meant to flatter us, as that author said, might it not be that we too could be called half-baked Christians? Couldn't it be said our life's potential for the kingdom is rarely matched by its fulfilment. Are we not okay with some doughy, yucky bits and quite accustomed to some spiritual apathy? 
quite ready to sacrifice for Christ in theory, but when push comes to shove and the opportunities present themselves, a little bit reactive or defensive or fearful, resistant, if it calls for change, for a lost preference, for a weeknight or something that might take our spouse away for the night. It's so easy to have a scarcity mindset when it comes to what is being asked of us. Let's not do that. Let's not invite and just rest by ourselves. Let's not give in in case we sorry, let's not give in case we need that later. Let's put our needs first in this. And so if we're not careful, we can be living sacrifices quite good at preserving what we've got. Not realizing that God gives us grace sufficient for the love we show. As we step up, God meets us with that grace, whether much or little. Sometimes I benefit from doing nothing at night, but I've also been learning to redefine a bit what I count as rest, to include hospitality, to include time with friends and church family. Last Friday we had church friends over for dinner. It was a very relaxing, enjoyable, um, life-giving occasion. Sometimes against expectations, to step out for others is life-giving. And these occasions have proved more restful, more rewarding, more good for me than a night watching more TV. As I seek to trust God by doing what he says is good, I find him faithful. And his commands, when I obey them, are better for me than I realized. How about you? Are you not also like me, half-baked? And will you not have an honest word to yourself, your own soul today? In the service sheet, Spurgeon asks, we do this. I'll, I'll read some of it. My soul, I charge you to see whether this is true of you. Are you thorough in the things of God? Has grace gone to the very centre of your being so that its divine operation is felt in all your powers, your actions, your words and your thoughts? And will you also have an honest word with your Saviour? Again, Spurgeon leads us when he writes, Lord Jesus, turn to me. Uh, turn me. Turn my unsanctified nature to the fire of your love and let it feel the sacred glow. Let me not be a double-minded person, but one who is entirely under the influence of your reigning grace. Will you get on your knees today? I challenge you. Speak to your soul and speak to the Lord Jesus until you mean it. It may be that the yesterday you flipped over, repenting, could become a very different tomorrow you. The yesterday you flipped over to become a very different tomorrow you. You might not want that yet. You might not expect that's ever going to happen. Bring it to God and see. Next, verses 11 to 13, Israel. Your spiritual adultery makes you like a senseless bird. It's disturbing, it's disturbing, isn't it, to see a bird stuck indoors trying to get out and banging into the window repeatedly. All energy, panic, but no insight or sense. Verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. Can you imagine, from God's point of view, the Lord Almighty who drew Israel up out of Egypt with his mighty arm is now sidelined, he's on the bench while his team is losing as they cry out to Egypt one minute for help and then to Assyria, the ones that are going to cap, cap, um, capture them in the end. The Lord watches as a reserve, watching their misery unfold. Everywhere but God, they will turn. 
senseless birds, what am I going to do with you? Now, Christians, we look at world affairs and we can rejoice that the Lord is sovereign somehow, through and behind it all. And I don't mean to suggest military equipment is unimportant, but I'm glad I'm not relying on three submarines, AUKUS agreements or world politicians to say, before I can say, it is well with my soul. But our world, understandably, is anxious. The world must hear from the church and your friends must hear from you that we never arrive at a place of rest if we never seek rest in the right place. We never arrive at a place of rest if we never seek rest in the right place. Our world wants Eden's peace, but not without Eden's God. The alternative for Israel and for the world is not only to miss the peace he offers, but to receive God's right indignation, now or later, or both, verse 12 to 13. When they go, I'll throw my net over them. I'll put them down like the birds in the sky. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. And notice God is still taking their rejection personally. Um, Sin isn't just against nothing. It's okay as long as no one gets hurt. Sin is personal to God. Woe to them, verse 13, because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them because they have rebelled against me. Betrayal in the face of grace. To sin against him is to sin against love. So God continues, verse 13, I long to redeem them. See how patient he is. But they speak about me falsely. They speak about me falsely. May we as a church learn to do this less and less. Last week we gave our teenagers a signed copy, thanks for signing the books, um, a copy of Concise Theology. I chose that book not because it's fun or light or an entertaining read, but because I want the youth and all ages to know truth deeply matters. That our church and our church's children have good minds. And it's our responsibility to see we all grow in the Lord's ways and we take our minds seriously. That our appreciation for the Lord ever expands towards who he is. Fourthly, Israel, your spiritual adultery makes you like a faulty bow. Verses 14 to 16. I take it a bow in their day was a bit like a parachute. When you're using a bow, it's because you really need it to work. You've got something you're trying to kill that's trying to kill you. Um, I used to volunteer at a a youth camp called Teen Ranch where one of the activities was archery. Unlike a lot of safety talks that seem a bit unnecessary, the safety talk on this occasion seemed really important to the seven-year-olds and the 17-year-olds. How to load the, the arrow, where to point it, where not to point it, when and where to shoot it. They're actually important instructions. Don't retrieve your arrows until everyone stops shooting. After they finish their arrows, they're keen to run and get it to shoot some more. Wait. But the image here gets worse than an unreliable bow. It's more sinister. It's about a child who grows up only to turn the faulty arrow back towards his own father. It's more like that. The root and fruit of their pagan religion has turned them against God, against one another, and as we see in religions and secular societies, into widespread self-harm, taking so many forms. And as I I raise the topic of self-harm, please please feel free to talk about that if, if you're in that situation. 
And there are various ways we can do that to ourselves. Uh, We'd love to walk with you in that. In Israel's case, we see self-harm, perhaps as part of their rituals, however, verses 14 to 15. They don't cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves, appealing to their gods for for grain and new wine. But they turn away from me. I train them and strengthen their arms, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty bow. And so the result is inevitable disappointment, verse 16. Egypt, the land from which God victoriously called his son, is now ridiculing the son as he falls again. And so, friends, God or what? What alternative do we have but the living God? A morning mist, a dodgy oven, a half-baked cake, a senseless bird, a faulty bow. Brothers and sisters, we mustn't sell ourselves short. We mustn't sell ourselves to idols. We mustn't sell ourselves. A faulty bow reminds me of Paul's word in Romans where he described us as being God's instruments, a military word, God's weapons of righteousness. God or what? As we're faced with sin and temptation, Hosea tutors us for the daily God or what question. Which way will we go? Two ways to live. Which path? The only sane answer is to say God over every alternative. Where else have we to go but Jesus with our sin, with our life? Now, does this mean that we reject the world and we become like a fortress? We refuse to engage in case we become too much like them over there? No, Jesus gives us a much healthier model. Jesus neither conformed to the world nor did he despise it. He engaged in it with perfect truth and perfect love. Always true to himself, yet wholly approachable for sinners. As compassionate as he was uncompromising. A friend of mine's a partner in a firm at Barangaroo and he tells, he'd be the first to tell you he's got many flaws, many weaknesses as a Christian. But as I look on, I can see how purposeful he is in the workplace. An effective bow, an instrument of righteousness. He's in the world, skilled in its ways, but he's not of the world. He's in the building, he's in the city to save it. May our church be the same, that Christ be seen and glorified even through us.